Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening today. Before we join the podcast, we'd like to let you know that Understanding Ag will be hosting a Soil Health Academy on Monty's Farm this summer in Cambridge, Illinois, August 1st through the 3rd. This workshop will focus on implementing regenerative principles in a corn-soy rotation. What a great opportunity to see these concepts in action on the farm with instructors Gabe Brown, Shane New, Luke Jones, and Brian Doherty. Don't miss the powerhouse conversations guaranteed to take place. Head on over to the Soil Health Academy website at www.soilhealthacademy.org and click on the Education tab to see the Soil Health Academy upcoming workshops. And now, let's get on with the show. Today, we flip the tables as Frank Lesseter, Lesseter Media founder and editor of No-Till Farmer, interviews Monty for the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast. Frank and Monty discuss soil health, the history and changes we've seen in no-till, and the regenerative agriculture movement, and much, much more. So let's jump right in. Let's uh, let's get started. Let's start with some history, Monty. Uh, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, tell me a little about your, your history and your dad's history and the history of the farm okay. and where you're located. All right, Frank. Thanks for, thanks for having me here. I appreciate it. Uh, we're located in northwest Illinois in Henry County. Um, not very far away from one of your dear friends, Mr. Marion Kalmer. Sure. About 15 miles uh, northeast of him, where he's at. Um, dad and I, my dad moved to the area. Uh, my wife's originally from the area in 1974, you know, so he's he's just a newbie. He, right. He's a transplant there. Uh, started with, uh, he started with just 80 acres on their home farm and was a IH uh, partsman and later became a... Uh, salesman at a local IH dealership and eventually the owner uh, with a group of farmers of um, one that grew into three dealerships and then in the late 90s when a lot of turmoil was going on uh, we sold those dealerships uh, I worked at the dealership at the time out of college and that was what I was going to do for an entire career so uh, when that changed up uh, started farming a little more and eventually uh, went to work at a Case IH dealership in California, fell in love with uh, California agriculture and the diversity, really good people there, and saw this amazing amount of tillage going on out there. And I just could not believe it because, you know, we'd been no-tilling sure. on the farm since 96 or so and thought, boy, is there a way we can help these California farmers reduce tillage? And um, that's what I did after um, that Case IH dealership was sold to another one. I, I didn't have to be told a third time that maybe this wasn't the right business to be in. So we, uh, we started a crop consulting business there in California and selling specialty fertilizer products and biologicals before biologicals were cool. Uh, that was back in the snake oil days. And uh, we uh, worked with some farmers there and really started integrating um, cover crops, uh, minimum tillage, uh, 
drip irrigation, those kind of things. It, it grew into a company called California Ag Solutions. And then uh, worked with growers out there and we kept expanding the farm. And about uh, 10 years ago now, my wife and I started transitioning back to Illinois um, to be with family. And at that time, we were a little behind the cover crop uh, trend. Uh, sure. so you'll have to forgive me, Frank, but I wasn't here to do it. Uh, but when I got back, we started doing cover crops. And then uh, later on, we started doing uh, integrated livestock. So now we have a direct to consumer livestock company uh, and we've expanded the farm and, and cover cropping efforts. And we're doing everything uh, that we possibly can on all fronts for soil health in the regenerative agriculture movement. So, so how many acres are you uh, farming? About 2,500 and we've got uh, 200 to pasture. Okay. Mainly corn and soybeans or? The cash crops, corn and soybeans, we do have some wheat, uh, rye for seed. Uh, we'll do some hay uh, occasionally. We'll have ground that we set out for grazing. So um, there's a little bit, uh, primarily corn bean, though. Uh, we'd like to transition to more diversity. So you've been no-till since 1995 or 1996. How did, you, how did your dad and you get into no-till? Well, it basically started because of time, Frank. Uh, mm -hmm. when dad was working full-time at the dealership, uh, we had, uh, it came out with a 955 or 950, uh, 15 inch row planter with colder bar on it, uh, which was made by blue jet painted red and a colder for every row. And we saw that and it's like, good grief. That's no different. Uh, seed beds, no different than any sort of tillage. So, um, we did that and did nutrition on the plant at the same time. We did banded nitrogen and on seed at the time and didn't see any yield bumps. Uh, sold the anhydrous bar and never looked back. So, and then at the same time, we started, uh, we went right from 36 inch row corn to 15 inch row corn at the time. And uh, my dad and Marion were really good friends. And uh, we ran one of the very prototype 15 inch row corn heads of Marion's. And um, eventually we went to 20 inch rows. Uh, just because of equipment size, we went to a 2420. Then we went to 2430. So we've, we've kind of gone backwards in that regard. But a lot of it has to do with the horsepower requirement of a, of a 60 foot bar with 15 inch rows. Sure. So uh, any, any problems getting into no-till the first couple of years? Uh, I would say because we started right away with uh, 40 units of nitrogen and we've grown that over time on the planter and with uh, on-seed starter, uh, just by pure dumb luck and coincidence, we had no transition challenges. And that's really been the basis of what we do at California Ag Solutions and at Ag Solutions Network. When you, when you address that nutritional change, when you go from tillage to no-till, you don't see that yield lag that guys talk about well it takes you three years and uh, no nobody wants a three-year wait uh, sure but we're just trying to make that no-till transition quicker easier so with uh with farmers in your area and in california how do you how do you when they bring up the yield drop what do you, what do you tell them well in in california we it's a little bit different because the specialty crops, they're mainly concerned about operational issues and or residue for food safety and um, various things. Uh, so we kind of address those issues. In the Midwest and Great Plains, um, it, it's just sometimes we've taken planters to other uh, people's farms because they don't have the planting equipment to make it happen. Uh, 
and sometimes just show them the science behind it and other relate other people's experiences uh, to see because, you know, in the 80s, I don't know if you heard this, Frank, I'm sure you did over and over, but uh, locally, it got to be known as uh, no till is no yield. And exactly, I think right. they made a problem, they took a standard planter, they put slapped a wavy colder on the front. And if you had perfect planting conditions, it would work. And we had a few years where it did. Then we had a few years where it didn't. It was too wet. We had sidewall smearing or too dry. It wouldn't go on the ground. And um, we lost a generation of no-tillers there. And uh, so we, we try to get it right because if you don't get it right now, it'll be another generation, you know, until the, until the next generation is in charge of decision-making for it to happen. So. You just brought up an interesting point that some people have told me recently that the, the people who really started with no-till, the pioneers, are getting old these days. And the question is, is the new generation as excited about no-till as the other one was? Are we losing some no-till interest these days, or is it the same or growing? So I don't. You know, I can only give you my opinion. I, I don't know sure. the, the, the that's why we're trend. talking to you for your opinion. <laughs> well, I, I don't have any, there's no science to back this up. Um, I would, there's young farmers today who have never farmed without GMO crops. Sure. Um, they don't know how to put a chemistry program together other than Roundup and Dicamba um they they just aren't familiar with it there's there's an art um be, that's been lost um i think if you look at the motivations for getting into no-till was a lot of cost driven i mean that your 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 customer base that the hardcore people are cost 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 right right and then the other thing is is the time savings that's why we did it because dad had a full-time job and i had a full-time job you know, we didn't have time to run the tillage equipment ahead of the planter. It just had to go. Um, today, I think there's a, it's, there's a lot of comfortable tractors that ride really nice and, you know, high-speed planters and high-speed uh, jokers and tillage equipment. That makes it kind of cool to, to go out there and till and stir up stuff. And I, I think we've kind of lost, and, and honestly, uh, the margins in farming now uh, compared to the 80s and the 90s um, are really good. So when you got money, farmers like to spend it and they like shiny iron and shiny sure. iron pulls tillage equipment. So I would think I see more tillage than I'd like to. Um, the trend is not increasing in the no-till arena in, in my opinion, uh, but we've got tools and technologies with all the planner stuff that we have today and the sensor arrays and from multiple companies, not just, you know, precision planning. Uh, we have all kinds of opportunities to do no-till right and, and a lot more fertility options and everything. But if you look at the variety of tools and technologies that we have today, but the adoption rate of no-till is not exploding at that same rate. So, um, it's a concern. Um, and, and another concern I, I wanted to bring up while we were together today too, is on the consumer side. And I, I've learned a lot having that direct to consumer business and you and I understand the soil health benefits of not tilling, you know, sure. lack of erosion, better water infiltration, more biology, yeah, earthworms, yada, yada. 
but our primary tool in chemical control uh, weeds is glyphosate. It's in the news all the time. Our secondary control is Paraquat. It's now in the news all the time. And without herbicides, I can, on our farm, we've, we've eliminated insecticides, eliminated fungicides, and you can do that pretty well by, by paying attention to what you're doing. Herbicides, tough to eliminate. And I think with the consumer trends, uh, and, and there's a lot of votes and, you know, uh, despite where you fall on the science, you know, I, I think there's, there's more to be scared about with, with glyphosate than what the average farmer thinks, but I think there's less to be scared about with glyphosate than what the average consumer thinks. Okay. So there's, um, farmers, we need to be a little more aware, uh, consumers maybe need to be a little, little less anxious and sure. every chemical makes a change. And my, my dad's always said this. He says, just because you quit using glyphosate, how do you know what you use in its place isn't worse? And uh, that's very wise words. It's just that we've studied the glyphosate so much because it's such a um, worldwide popular and cheap product. But I, I'm concerned about the future of no-till in regards to weed control. So we have to Fast forward, and, and that's why I interview a lot of people on our podcast about robotic weed killers, whether it's mowing, lasers, spraying um, zinc or spraying uh, nitrogen on a plant at a high dose, but just right on the plant. Though electrolysis, all flaming, all these other options, because I really think in the near future, 10 years, uh, chemistries are going to largely be off the table especially the ones we need in no-till. You mentioned Paraquat. Are you using Paraquat in your operation? I have, yes. Oh, tell us how it, how it fits in your no-till program. For years, Paraquat, before glyphosate came along, Paraquat was what everybody used with no-till. And then we moved, when we got glyphosate, a lot of people moved away from Paraquat. So I'd be curious to know how you're using Paraquat. Well, first off, there's safety aspects to both, right? Uh, I have exactly. things. Paraquat will kill you today glyphosate will kill you tomorrow. So both of them have to be handled with extraordinary care. Um, and also the same thing with the environmental impacts. Um, Paraquat, when we've used that, um, we have used third-party applicators because uh, just for safety and labor constraints that we have at the time of planting. Paraquat makes for an interesting story when planting green. So um, you can have a high biomass crop that you plant and it can be a day from being up. You spray it with Paraquat and it's crispy. Sure. And you don't have that green light interference or the near infrared light interference that you would with a plant that's been killed with glyphosate. That's kind of thinking about dying for two weeks. Okay. Now this year, the hot, dry weather, it dries a lot quicker, but typically, you know, you got 10 days of two weeks of some greenness out there waiting for a plant to kill with glyphosate. So I think it allows us to grow out our cover crops to bigger biomass uh, prior to emergence and, and terminate it quick and roll it down nice and crispy. So there's a different management strategy there. Um, I think, um, you, you know, you don't go through the fungal changes the back, uh, within the soil and the uh, anaerobic species stimulation that comes from glyphosate translocation. 
So you don't have the uh, Phytophthora fusarium uh, spike issues that you do with glyphosate. Um, but again, both of them, um, you know, too many lawyer commercials on uh, on TV. Right, exactly. Uh, both of them are probably have a um, limited time frame. And I still think, you know, 2,4-D is another key component in all these issues too. And uh, it's just a matter of time before we see the lawyer commercials on that one. Well, it's interesting when you look back at no-till. I mean, we followed it for 50 years. And uh, early on, when uh, the chemicals that were used for weed control were atrazine, paraquat, and princept, and some dicamba at that point. But all of a sudden, some of these that we've kind of written off have been back in the picture in recent years. Mm -hmm. And I think it's good to have a rotation of chemicals, just like you have a rotation of crops. Right. So uh, we've had uh, two years of Paraquat in the rotation. Uh, this year, we elected to go back to uh, terminating ourselves and being in control of our weed program because we're 100% non-GMO corn and beans. Now, non-GMO corn weed control, pretty easy. Non-GMO beans, I got a lot to figure out yet. So <laughs> <laughs> we're we're working on that. And uh, but so just because of the timing aspects and um, uh, we, we went back to glyphosate, but I think, you know, that interruption there also helps us just like changing mode of actions of, of chemistries. Sure. Uh, that's, that helps too. We, we haven't built up uh, glyphosate resistance. So you're using, uh, you're using glyphosate, but you're non-GMO. Let's talk about that. How, why you got into that market and what it's meant for you. Well, the non-GMO, um, market, we, half of our corn, uh, goes to food grade corn. Okay. Um, so it's milled, uh, for polenta in Italy. Uh, and the other half of it goes uh, non-GMO when I can catch a barge on the Illinois river. Um, and that depends some years it's enough to pay for the extra trucking to Illinois river. Sometimes it's not, and it, and it goes to ethanol. So, um, really haven't seen any yield related issues um you know weed control options in corn no problem uh work with prairie hybrids out of tampico um so they're close by to us and um perform well so been been pretty pretty happy with that on the beans uh we can pick up some substantial premiums on non-gmo beans uh and we're going to the river anyway uh the only only thing is is that we have to deliver within a two-day time frame instead of any day of the week. Sure. So it does require hiring some trucks when they got a barge call. But, um, you know, the premium is definitely worth it. Um, we'll be traditionally, you know, in older bean prices, we were buck 40, buck 50. Uh, now we're able to get up to 240 a bushel. Uh, There's some specialty bean markets. Uh, uh, buyer beware to the listeners. Uh, always check it out. I've had some bad experiences uh with with one company if you want to know what that is you can reach out to me i'll tell you um i'm in the process of another company right now uh, that we're working with that has a five dollar premium and they pick it up on the farm so that's a, a rather interesting thing so i think uh, uh verdicts out to see if that yields as well and and it pays but yeah. i think there's you have to have the market for that on the on gmo beans to to make it pay so now right. To answer the other part of your question, Frank, is why in the world are you a nutcase and do 
do stuff a little harder like this. Um, <laughs> I think um, in exploring um, some of the research papers that that don't get a lot of press is that um, there's a thing called uh, the the way that nature works is nature doesn't like to spend more energy than it wants to to accomplish something and we were always taught that when we make dna uh, we make it from proteins and we break every protein down into individual amino acids and those individual amino acids are reconstituted to make dna well about 10 or 15 years ago they're like no that isn't the way it works it's broken into bits and in those chains as long as the the ends of those proteins are the same as what the body's looking for they just grab the whole chain and put it together less energy required um, then recently um, we started to identify that certain gmo things that we're doing in our crops that get consumed directly uh, that you know not through a high temperature uh, processing component but more direct consumption is that some of those marker genes are are assimilating in the genome and I, I don't mind Roundup Ready plants, but I really don't want to be Roundup Ready too myself, okay? Uh, or I don't want to be Enlist or, or, or Dicamba resistant. So knowing, I think it um, behooves us as farmers, once we're made aware of something, it's really tough for a farmer to choose to do something that isn't right. Sure. It, it, it may take a while to get off the habit, okay? But I don't think farmers intentionally ever do something that they knowingly know is causing harm or making a change in some way. Right. And when I became aware of that, I'm like, uh, it just really ate at me. And I thought, you know what? I can do this without GMO. And 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 then I uh, then I don't have any risk of gene transfer into insects, into livestock, or into worst case humans. And um, so that's why we've we've done that. And I think there's a plethora of things coming down the road with CRISPR, mRNA, and, and those kind of things that uh, genetic transfer and genetic moving around is, um, it, it, it's going to be an issue. So um, we're, we're trying to stay as close to nature as possible. And we'll, we'll see what happens. I'm sure several people will will let us know on the other things and that's their choice and and that's fine uh, but our consumers tell us they don't want that and uh, i kind of agree with them the ag emerge podcast is brought to you by ag solutions network the asn team is hands-on digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome we provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey so stop farming the same way and contact ag solutions network today at asn.farm Let's talk about your corn program for a while. What kind of yields you're looking for? What kind of uh, fertilizer are you using, et cetera? So I think yield, uh, looking at pure yield is always a slippery slope because sure. a lot of people, you know, trade dollars for bushels and at the incremental end. Uh, we, we hover around a 225, 240 range. Um, APH is where we're at on corn. Um, 
we typically do that with uh, 150 to 175 total units of nitrogen, uh, about uh, 25 units of phosphorus to 30, about 25 to 30 units phosphor of potassium, and about 30 to 35 units of sulfur. Um, we have found that we've needed minimal lime additions uh, since reducing our nitrogen rates um, and cover crops help with pH balancing of the soil. So we're that's what we're kind of doing on there. And, and it we have no nutrition that goes on the field ahead of the planter. So the planter pass is putting on uh, basically 80, uh, let's say 80, 30, 15, 15. S and then uh, that's an on seed. We put um, uh, a NPK package in the wings of the furrow jet, so that's mix two, along with micros and biologicals. And then uh, we put uh, our NK and S solution through conceal. So we basically have three mixes on the planter, placed in five locations, um, all controlled with uh, V Apply HD. So it is variable rate capable. I'm currently not doing variable rate because I'm not smart enough to know what correlates to variable rate. Um, I don't know if anyone is, but uh, would love to if we could figure out what the correlation is. I think it a lot has to do with water for the plant available capacity and being able to quantify that. I've had, I had we don't have sand and muck. Okay. So sure. we, have, we have some flat ground, some hill, more hill, a lot of hill. So that's kind of a, the base material is about the same. It's just the, the eroded factor from the years of plowing uh, prior to no-till. Um, but that, and then followed up with Y-drop uh, was where we do the balance of the N, K, and S. So in Y-drop, we'll do another 80, roughly 80, 15, 15, 80, 0, 15, 15. Uh, and then we will do a foliar with, uh, at Brown Silk, potassium foliar from one of our products and a biological to reduce stress at that time um, and no fungicides. So that's, that's kind of the summary of the, of the corn program. So um, tell me what planter you're running and what attachments you got on. All right. So currently um, we're running a harvest international um, and harvest international is basically, they sell you the iron. And then you put all the precision planning components on it. Sure. We've got uh, Martin row cleaners on the front with clean sweep, um, conceals. Um, I have VSET select so I can do two hybrid if I want. Um, then um, furrow jet and furrow force. So, excuse me just a second. <laughs> Uh, too much rye pollen, Frank. <laughs> uh, but um, so yeah, conceal, furrow jet, furrow force, and then the V apply HD for each one of those three mixes. We do one per row. Um, don't that's too much. We don't need that much um, in the future. And I pull a tank. So I have two tanks on the planter frame. I pull a two tank trailer. Next year, I just ordered a horse planter. So the horse has a lot of onboard capacity without having to pull a tank. So if you pulled a tank 
um, you'll appreciate not pulling a tank. So will you run both planters next year or just the horse? Just the horse. Okay. So and the horse will be, we got uh, two 730 gallon compartments. That'll be nitrogen. And then we'll have tanks on either side, 250 each. So 500 total. And that'll likely be my Furrowjet wing solution. And then we'll put a um, 300 or so on the tractor for the on-seed solution. So your horse planter, 30-inch rows, how many rows? 2430. Okay. Yeah, I, I looked at, I wanted to go to 15-inch, but then you lose the tank capacity uh, just in their configuration. So um, if I want 15-inch beans, I'll probably double back on those fields on those fields that need it wow you, you mentioned soybeans let's talk about soybeans your program your yield goal your fertilization yeah soybeans um we're looking at we we've we've struggled with non-gmo and and the uh weed issue uh prior to that uh we were in the mid 60s uh we have fallen off into the upper 50s because of that uh we're adamantly we're looking at getting back up to their um, mid-60s again. I think we've got some things in place to address that. Um, pretty simple on seed. We do, and we also do some potassium sulfate in um, uh, the wings on the conceal at the same time, three gallons of each. And then um, uh, we were 30 inch, but because the weed control, I did do some doubling back this year to um, look at improved weed control doing 15 inch uh, it's just i'd like to have a 15 inch planter too but there's only one of me so uh, <laughs> uh, we don't have uh, enough acres to to have two operators and two planters running at the same time it, it'd be nice but uh, at the moment we don't being foliar uh, at um at, if key stress times uh but at r3 foliar is what we typically do there How often are you soil testing? Well, there is a great question, Frank. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do a lot of soil testing and I, I, I appreciate soil testing. Uh, and I think soil testing is great when you get a new farm or if you're a consultant and you're working in a new area to get a baseline understanding of what's going on. And adjusting pH is an excellent thing to do based on a soil test. Everything else, when you're in a no-till situation and you're trying to apply phosphorus to the ground, uh, just because you show low soil test on there, uh, what are you going to do? Uh, if you go out and spread phosphorus on the surface, it's it's going to stay on the surface. And uh, my, I'm not going to be like my buddy Marion and get out the moldboard plow and, and go after it. So, uh, <laughs> um you know, that's why we're doing the injection based with the planter. Um, we're getting the phosphorus into the root zone next to the plant. Uh, we may increase that, but I, I soil test every four years, mainly for lime. Um, I have applied 100 pounds of K uh, field farm wide in 25 years. I've done 100 pounds of K in some special areas once in 25 years. Um, haven't done any phosphorus in 25 years. So a good, a good question to ask is a no-tiller who's been no-tilling for a few years and is uh, soil testing. Mm -hmm. 
Should he do it different than he was doing with conventional tillage? What are you telling your people, your farmers you work with, how to pull a soil sample off no-till ground? Well, stratification, we've all known for a long sure. period of time is an issue. Um, I think it's very wise to, to look at a sample uh, do the, in the Midwest, a six-inch core where you're not you know, irrigating or you're not uh, tilling is adequate. And then you really need to look at dividing that core into sections. So the top inch, uh, one to two, and then likely two to six, depending on what's going on. So, or you can do zero to one, one to three, three to six. Reason for that is we don't have, even though we have a high oxygen status, it's highly likely we will dry out and not have a lot of nutrient uptake out of that top inch. So the roots are, even though they're in the presence of high nutrition, which is where it's going to be the highest if you've been doing broadcast dry fertilizers, you're likely not going to have uh, root expansion at the very, very surface unless you have really heavy residue covers adjacent to the plant. So we're typically using row cleaners. We typically have good biology breaking down our residues. So, you know, the top inch is not a whole lot of roots. Now, the next one to three we have a, an explosion of roots that are active in consistently moist soil that's consistently below 85 degrees. You know, it, it's much more consistent zone. So that's, that's really where the plant's going to pull a lot of its uh, oxygen heavy nutrients from. And then three to six is more of what's available for longer term, what, what's going to be upcycled through the plant, you know, move from the roots and redeposited into that. Uh, so, I mean, you've had people at no-till conference talk about how uh, nutrients move in the plant, how water is staged in the plant, you know, where you, you take it from depth and a plant brings it up and then redeposits it shallow overnight in order to use it first thing in the morning. I mean, there's, there's some amazing things that plants do. But I think that's uh, the stratification issue. That's a good way to look at it. And, you know, maybe uh, um, this will make Jack uh, happy here, but uh, strip till may have its place, right? And uh, uh, intermittently, uh, or if you need dry fertilizer applied because you're in an environment uh, in your cultural context or your soil formation context where you need a heavy load of dry fertilizers put in to improve your baseline. See, I think dry fertilizers are designed to improve your baseline fertility needs. The planter fertilizers are for this crop and immediate needs. Okay, so they're, they're two different needs. And I think all too often we over fertilize with dry to meet the immediate, or we just supply the immediate and draw down uh, the baseline because you can't export forever and expect things to, to stay there. You have to monitor those things, which, which uh, I do. But I think, um, you know, when there's a need for intervention, it'd be great in a strip till pass to inject that um, and maybe, you know, take off the no-till cap for once every four years or once every eight years, something like that, versus just broadcast on the surface. And I think that's a much better option than uh, uh, Marion and his moldboard. So I, I'd rather see it in, injected that way and um, uh, done. So uh, I feel bad. Marion's not here to defend himself, but that's okay. Uh, you, you don't mind, do you, Frank? I mean, no, no. He's hassled us for years. He yes. needs to get he, somewhere. He well deserves it. 
So have you looked at strip-till for your operation? I have. And um, one of the things that happens because, and again, you have to look at the uh, context, because of our, um, you know, rolling topography, uh, it's very difficult now with anything bigger than a four-row planter to plan on contours because your rows need to go every which way to address the topography. So we wind up going on side hills, but then we'll catch an up and a downhill. And when we've done some strip till work, um, it, it made me sick and, uh, it, it made my dad sick seeing the erosion on the hills. So in my scenario, um, an idea I've had is like having a Coulter injection, uh, like let's say a big Maverick type injector, uh, for dry fertilizer in the row. So you're indexing it. And then the tillage would only occur on slopes that are A and B slopes. So zero to 5% slopes only. So it's almost as if you drive across the field on the flats, uh, the tillage would be engaged. And then on the, you know, CD slopes, it would raise, but the, the fertilizer is still going in. Um, piece of equipment like that doesn't exist, uh, but I, I just cannot stand the in strip erosion associated sure. with strip till just just as disheartening let's switch over to cover crops let's hear what you're doing on cover crops and mixes uh how you're figuring out what the nutrient value is to your corn and soybeans well first off you you have uh i remember when i i came to the no-till conference it'd been a little while since i'd been there and i thought wait a minute frank Mike, you got to rename this thing. It's the cover crop <laughs> conference, not the no-till conference. Holy smokes. I mean, every presentation was cover crops, cover crops, cover crops. Yeah, we've gotten a little flack for that too. But... Oh no, that I when I first arrived, it was a little bit of a whiplash, but yeah, I understand. Uh they are an amazing tool. Uh so we battle uh labor like anyone. So cover crops add another labor level at harvest. And when harvest is your number one labor demand. <laughs> so right. we take uh, something and make it worse in that regard. So it's tough to execute. I have uh, tried aerial seeding a few times. I, I call that Indian cover crops, Frank. You know what that means, right? No, you got to, you got to. That, mean, that means Apache here, Apache there. So <laughs> Very I, I haven't had luck with that. I've tried uh, overseeding with a, um, Peggy. And the broadleaf corn that was covering all the ground, it was just no, no light to the ground. I thought, oh boy, that's not going to work. But boy, this upright one is going to work great. There's what you get for thinking. Of course, it was the opposite. Uh, the other thing I got going on too, Frank, is um, uh, too many earthworms. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they go out there and they grab all the seed off the ground and they pull them into their middens. So the, the, the funniest thing was, is that every midden, which is about 10 inches apart, had this little fur of rye here and there, but they, they took a lot of the rye down their hole. And, um, I've just had no luck with that. So we, we, we go to, uh, John Deere, uh, 1990 CCS is what we seed after corn, uh, Sioux cereal rye, because that really, we've tried barley, wheat, um, everything else. I would love to have more diversity. We've done Austrian pea, hairy vetch. Um, just rye consistently works. 
no matter what the date is. I mean, you you can plant it with the, almost the ground froze and this stuff still grows. Uh, I do like the Elbon rye better than VNS rye. Um, it it has a different growth pattern. It's it's not as tall. It stools out a little more, lower seed rate because of smaller seeds per pound, all those things. How many pounds per acre? Well, I've run anywhere from 10 to 100. Uh, typically, in my cover crop configuration, I'm doing, I have seven and a half inch drill. Every fourth row is blocked off, leaving me a 15 inch corridor to plant my 30 inch row crop into. And I'll run that at 45 pounds. If we're on full seed, we'll run uh, 55 to 60, typically. If I'm relay cropping, we'll run 10 to 15 pounds. That's where we're harvesting the rye off for seed, followed in interplanting soybeans. If I am in an organic attempt or a experiment or really bad compaction uh, where I'm trying to get some biomass out there, I'll go 100 pounds, 120 pounds. Uh, the thicker you can go, the higher the probability of roller crimp killing. So that, that's what we do there. And most success ahead of the beans. Rye ahead of the corn has caused me heartaches and, and problems, even with the good amount of dose of nitrogen that I have up front with my planter. I mean, we'll 80 to 100 units and we still have issues. So I really need to, uh, this year I'm looking at ARG, um, annual ryegrass ahead of corn and um, continue with the rye ahead of beans. I've tried wheat ahead of beans uh rye has yielded me seven bushels more i've also tried um i have a roller too because when we terminate when it's tall we want to knock that down for shade competition we've done a lot of replicated studies on that uh, you know three to seven bushels just from rolling down the rye uh, helping the prior to beans emerging so this isn't the roller effect of that uh, some people are trying to damage the bean to get it to node more lower that's just from sunlight effect. So, um, yeah, and I, I would like to get more diversity on the winter crops. I, I just can't. And um, I think that's because I'm not, I'm planting full season corns, full season beans. I'm not getting in there soon enough. So I need to take possibly yield hit. Don't know for sure, but one would assume to plant a little earlier in order to get more cover crop and, and think more holistically that I might give up a few bushels this year to improve soil quality for yield in the future. I do plant earlier corn for the cattle grazing. So my very first corn that went in this year was 104 day corn. We will relay uh, or interplant that here uh, first of next week at about V3. And um, that'll be for cattle grazing uh, post-harvest. We'll harvest that early, actually harvest a little wetter and then let the cover crop come and graze the cattle. Um, we also, cover crops, have uh, 120 to 160 acres a year that we do not plant to corner beans, and we'll put that into a high-diversity summer grazing mix. So all the warm-season brassicas, warm-season uh, legumes, and warm-season grasses. So a lot of uh, BMR forage sorghum sedan grass, uh, I have kale in there because we have a saying, our kale, cows eat kale, so you don't have to. And, uh, uh, we, you know, That's me. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I'd rather have a steak than a, than a kale. So, and, and we do that for grazing and, and typically that's been a two-year rotation. Then we come back to corn beans, um, 
This year, it's going to be a one year just because we're putting some fields together in rotation. But uh, that's always part of the plan too, is a either a small grain or we just go straight into the summer forage uh, for the grass-fed cattle business. So I know some uh, no-tillers in Pennsylvania who have gone to make maybe 95-day corn purposely so they could seed their cover crops earlier. You done some of that? Maybe not to that extreme, but... That's the the 104-day attempt um, I did last year, and I'm doing again this year. Interesting story on that, Frank. I had a 240-acre field. Half of it was the 104-day corn. The other half was 114-day corn planted later. Harvested the 104 early, planted right away in the end of September, 1st of October. I've had the cattle grazing that this spring, and they grazed it last fall, just the 120. I didn't graze the, the southern 120 with the full-season corn because it just wasn't up. It, it wasn't there to grow. This spring, I put them back on there, and I've been able to double the stocking rate on the early planted cover crop and continue to double the stocking rate wow. from April 7th until uh, here we're at May what 23rd or something, 24th. I've done double the stocking rate that entire season. So it shows you that the biomass and uh, uh, the establishment of that crop and being able to feed the soil, and in this case, feed the four-legged critters on top, is doubled if we can get it in a month sooner so there, there's definitely definitely something to that now what that means bushels i don't know but if you've got alternative revenue streams such as i do with the cattle sure that's a big deal you mentioned intercropping and relay intercropping talk about this for a minute oh still learning frank uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh first year horrific uh, problem because we we clipped the tops of the beans um, second year worked pretty good uh, third year was kind of hit or miss the weed second year we did it without any weed control we thought wow this is awesome here's an organic transition tool third year of course weeds came through so still still trying to learn um, and it is more profitable when you consider the costs of buying in seed for cover crop versus growing your own uh, so if you look at, you, you give up a little bit of soybean yield. Uh, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. I can get them for you. But we did give up for soybean yield to gain 20 bushels of rye. The rye tested at 94% germ, which blew my mind. You're not supposed to be able to do that in the Midwest. And we had a wet season last year. Uh, don't have that problem this year. And um, I think... Uh, it works great, but the problem is, is I only have so much rye that I need, right, for my sure. cover crops. So if, if I do 100 acres, uh, I'm great. So I can't do all 1,100 acres of soybeans this way. And plus on my topography, keeping that head above the soybean canopy on hills, good luck. Um, I mean, because it's not it's not like a you know, platform. We we decided we needed to design some bigger diameter wheels that would allow it to basically follow on the ground to stay above the top of the beans because you cannot clip the beans. You'll kill them, the growing point, and you'll you'll kill your yield by a, to a third. Okay, so um, we don't want twenty bushel beans. We want sixty bushel beans, and um, 
rye just won't work everywhere. Plus the end rows take, take a beating, uh, turning and harvesting it. So we typically create a flat spot within a field that's relatively minimal topography change. And we'll spray out the edges on the end rows and, and try to pick a zone where we, we come right up and have the cart parked, uh, on the field edge and direct load into the cart um, and then just drive right back because you you don't want to be driving back and forth trying to hit the cart or definitely not unloading on the go. Right. The so relay cropping I, we've tried. Uh, oh, go ahead, Frank. No, no, you go ahead. Oh, the, the relay cropping you asked about, um, or no, the intercropping. Yeah, you, you need another book, Frank. <laughs> cover cropping terms the history of cover cropping terms instead of the history of no-till that's that's you going to be your second book um <laughs> the uh the inner plant inner cropping uh, plant we've we've always planted it too late um we were scared we we're told oh you need to plant v4 v5 so yeah we plant v4 v5 v6 mounts to nothing herbicides that we're using is hurting us so this year we've got verdict out right now uh we're going to hit it at v2 and and see if we can make a make a go of it it's been limited success even on 60 inch rows i've had limited success um i think when you grow bigger yielding corn with good canopy closure you're struggling to to do cover crops within canopy because it just can't get established and and maintained so um it's wonderful if we could do everything but we have to realize that with our current technology, we have to have whole fields of something to harvest them. You know, a future, maybe robotics could let us do a three sisters approach, you know, and multiple harvests, multiple cultivation. You know, it's basically re replacing a person doing that. Uh, sure. But, you know, mechanics today is we're just bigger and bigger and bigger because there's only one guy to put in the seat. So that's why we have. 600 700 horsepower tractors and 16 18 row corn heads is there's one butt uh so when we can have robots replace butts we can rethink um we can really rethink our machinery and then i think we'll get to better companion cropping scenarios you just made a comment that's going to lead into my next question and we okay. talked about uh row widths seven and a half 15 20 and 30 now tell me about your experience with 60 inch rows. Well, um, Bob Recker, uh, I bumped into him uh, at Lauren Steinlaggy's field day. Uh, and uh, I was part of the original project there. And, you know, I was really excited because he wasn't seeing a yield drag and we could do all these extra things. That's great. When we did that again, unfortunately, in, in our context, uh, we, we lost uh, 16 to 20 bushels and all of a sudden, the revenue gain that we can get out of the utilization of that 60 inch row uh, is very tough to find a revenue gain uh, to offset that 16, 20 bushel loss. In addition, we don't get even residue distribution post harvest. So if we don't have good covers growing in the middle, which we didn't, uh, and I think that's probably herbicide interaction related. Um, so not 60 inch row thought, 60 inch rows fault um i i think that we have to have the residue covering in the middle 
because it, it gets pretty naked out there. Let's uh, switch gears a little and it's time to talk about your cattle operation, what you're doing with it and how you're marketing the beef, et cetera. Well, now when you think cattle operation, we are certainly not anything like Greeley, Colorado or some of the big boys out West. <laughs> um, so this is direct to consumer. Um, and so we closed herd now, uh, everything we raise, we sell. Um, we're antibiotic free. Uh, vaccine-free, which is becoming a big issue with consumers. Um, we get everything custom processed. Uh, we sell online, do home delivery, uh, UPS, and farmer's markets. So we're processing about 60 to 80 head of cattle per year. Uh, we're also processing, depends on the year, sometimes 50 to 100 head of hogs. We're doing about 5,000 birds, uh, meat chickens. And we have about 500 laying hens. So all of that is pasture-based, um, homegrown feed for the non-ruminants, 100% grass-fed for the ruminants. We did have sheep at one time. They're great uh, for land management, but we just don't have a local market that wants lamb. Uh, so that's more of a Mediterranean market. So we've, we've gotten out of sheep. But uh, yeah, we, we have a home farm that they're on through the winter. Otherwise, they're on cover crops. So uh, seven months out of the year, they're on fields. Five months out of the year, they're on pasture. Uh, we have no barns, no feed wagons, no manure spreaders, none of that. So we have uh, polywire, and now we're transitioning to virtual fencing uh, with a company out of Norway called No Fence. It's an amazing technology. Um, I like to say it makes uh, grazing so easy a corn farmer can do it. So <laughs> nod to the geico commercials right so you know this corn farmer can figure out how to graze uh, uh that's pretty good because there's a reason why uh, we got out of livestock right everything went into buildings because it's, exactly. it's really hard work uh that's that's obviously it's economics and all those things but livestock guys and i grew up in henry county the self-proclaimed hog capital of the world and i remember watching hogs on the ground and I, I know most of those farmers have passed now, but I, I know almost every one of them. And, you know, they've had way too many sows take out their knees and, uh, you know, out there in frozen conditions. It's, it's really, really tough work. Uh, but if we can do some things that allow the animals to work more for themselves, and I think virtual fencing is going to be one of those that would allow us to, you know, I, spent my entire childhood tearing down barns and taking out fences and hydrants. You know, we had one field, Frank named fenceless. <laughs> there, there was, there was so many fences in this place that once we got done taking them all out on the yield monitor, that was the field name fenceless. And now looking back at that, it's like, Hmm, kind of wish I had those fences, you know? <laughs> so, but virtual fencing is going to let us just put up a temporary perimeter around the farm, very inexpensive, very quick to put up probably two days put up a day to take down and then we can paddock graze so we're moving them to a new area every day because in no-till we don't have an opportunity to till out cattle trackling and and, sure. and do that so we're adamant about the no-till aspect of this but when you move them to a new location every day they don't trail and uh, we for five years have just no-tilled straight into uh, spring grazed cover crops and it works wonderfully well and I think it's, we've seen, my dad just sent me an email this morning. He says, hey, I was looking at the field view maps 
And he says, do you really think that organic matter has gained that much on that one field? He says, it's running one and a half percent higher than anything else you planted this year. I know you've had cattle there three years. Is Do you think that's doing it? So he's, he's all excited about that because he's pouring through the data right now. And uh, uh, yes, that is why we do it. Uh, we've had side hills, you know, 10% slopes that were moldboard by my previous generations have lost the topsoil. They have lost the subsoil and it's down to the chalky stuff. And um, we are having those areas instead of yielding 60 bushel yield 180 to 200 after three years of cattle and cover crops. So bottom line, that's why I'm doing it. I'm direct marketing it because the cost structure in doing it this way is ridiculous. So we have to cover all of our costs and regain what the broker, um, the processor, the food distributor and the grocery store would have gained in order to afford to stay in our little cattle grazing business. So I grew up on a centennial farm 40 miles north of Detroit in Michigan, uh, dairy herd for years, but then we got in the laying hen business. We had 3000 laying heads. Wow. So I don't quite understand. You got to go gather eggs from your laying hens in the cover crops or what? <laughs> well, the laying hens right now, because the barn design stay at the home pasture farm. Uh, okay. So they have nest boxes inside of a mobile barn. Mobile okay. barns like a greenhouse, 20 by 40. There's eight nesting boxes with rollouts in them. And we move that every day. We tow it forward with a tractor or a skid steer, 40 feet to 100 feet every day. And they have supplemental feed on board and water on board that barn. But then the doors open in the morning, close at night. They have a guardian dog for coyote protection that's trained to stay with them. But there's zero fences. So they, they can range to, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, if they want to. But um, I think, um, you know, this, this case, uh, it just allows them to move across the pasture. Uh, the main reason we have laying hens is because that's our only fresh product. All of our meat products are frozen. So there's not a reorder incentive. It's kind of, oh, I'll get to it when I need it. Sure. So we make awesome eggs with super dark colored yolks that are tall and fluffy and people rave about them. They order eggs and then in order to get free delivery, they add in more meat and that's where oh, eggs go. drive the meat sales. Uh, you know, I, chickens are not fun. Uh, if you had 3000 Frank, you know, they're, they're just not a lot of fun, <laughs> but, uh, it, people eat eggs and they need eggs. And, uh, we do that in order to help with the beef business. Right. Well, that's great. Tell me about your experience with biologicals. Well, I've uh, been working with them for a long period of time. Um, evaluated a lot of different things uh, from, you know, AMF and powders to spores and liquid to live portions in liquid. Um, looked at multiple things in multiple ways. Um, the thing that we've really settled on is uh, an approach that one is let's let uh, the biology, let's prosper the biology life that's in the soil. Everything is there and fairly ubiquitous across the earth. How can we create and support the ones that are most beneficial for us? So we have certain foodstuffs within our biologicals that we're using or that we market through ASN and our dealers. Um, and we have certain enzymes that cause certain chemical reactions so that 
beneficial aerobics will prosper more than uh, uh, pathogenic anaerobic type of um, uh, or facultative type of microbes. And then the other thing that we do too is we provide certain key amino acids and building blocks that the plant needs that is a high energy source that can easily be converted into plant growth hormones. But I haven't taken the approach of providing the plant hormone. And I've seen a lot of research where, you know, two parts per trillion is awesome. One part per trillion had no effect and three parts per trillion was yield limiting. So, and then the next very next one, you'll see it took five parts per trillion to make a difference and seven parts per trillion was detrimental and three was nothing. And I've decided I'm not that good to know when the right parts per trillion is the right amount. So we give the plant the building blocks it needs, uh, you know, amino acids, uh, different kelp extracts, uh, enzymatics, uh, surfactants to make products more available, uh, sugars and alcohol forms, uh, you know, various types of carbon chain components, all of these things all together as, as a complete package. And, you know, we've been doing it for 20 some years. And like I said earlier on, uh, that was in the days when it was uh, fairy dust. Uh, what, what's all, there's another book, Frank. What have they all been called? Fairy dust, uh, panther pea, squirrel. Um, snake oil. Snake oil. Um, yeah, you, you, you come up with it, right? But uh, it's neat to see uh, today the interest in it. I think it can save a lot of conventional synthetic fertilizer inputs. And if we can reduce applied nitrogen, we'll typically be able to increase carbon in the soils because uh, for the most part, we're over applying nitrogen um, and excess nitrogen in the soil will balance out the carbon and essentially burn it out of the soil, which you've had guys talk about on the stage, right? right. So I what's interesting, important. it's interesting in biologicals, Farm Journal some time ago did a survey on how many what percentage of farmers were interested in biologicals and it was about 20 percent but when we survey our no-till people over 50 percent are already using uh, biologicals and part of that reason is they've always been innovators they're willing to try things i think the no-till farmer and your audience is more in tune with with the soil um, yeah. versus it feel of it as uh, think of it as soil instead of think of it as dirt uh, it, it, it's a living organism designed to help me and my family thrive for for generations versus is others think it's just a place to put a crop right so let's talk regenerative ag for a few minutes there's a lot of people interested in it uh, there's a lot of people who are interested in it but had torn their fences out and they don't want to mess with cattle or sheep or pork anymore can you be a regenerative farmer without livestock This is a this is a big question, Frank. Um, okay, this is your fault, or okay. maybe my fault. You had Gabe at the National No-Till Conference in 2016, and okay. that was kind of his uh, breaking out regenerative conference. He he did a main about here's what I do on my farm, and then he did a follow up thing. Here's how we direct market what we do. Right. And I saw the profit per acre, and I'm like, wow, that's a thousand dollars per acre on chickens. Now, albeit you can't do many acres of them. It's still kind of interesting, right? So then, because uh, I'm a slow learner, Frank, I went to no-till on the plains three weeks later. And he was the main guy there. And he gave the same presentations. And I thought, okay, 
this is, this is too good to be true and needs to be forgotten or I need to do it. So for my wife's birthday, I said, honey, doesn't North Dakota sound like a great place to go? So I took my uh, wife on an amazing vacation to South Dakota, met with Dwayne Beck on his farm and uh, drove around, had fun with him. They went to Dan Forgey's place, uh, went on up to Jay Fuhrer's and ended with uh, Gabe and Paul Brown. Uh, a wonderful time through the Dakotas, as my wife, I'm sure, really appreciated. Has she ever uh, forgiven you? Well, we're still married. So, <laughs> so this this is good, Frank. <laughs> She's actively involved in the direct marketing business. So I think I've been forgiven or okay. I, I just don't want to ask. You know. <laughs> right. Uh, but I saw it. It was true. His soils and what he said with that 11% chart. If you've ever seen 11% soil, it's amazing to behold and have in your hands. So I, I knew I had to do it. And bottom line, if no-till gains you 10% per year in organic matter, and if cover crops gain you a 10th percent per year in organic matter, add cattle on top of that, you get four tenths percent per year. It's double the effect of cover crops and no-till. So what you got to ask yourself is, how much organic matter do you want? And when you've answered that question, you want all that you want, you want all that you can have. I think you'll get serious about considering the ruminant side. Now the hogs and the chickens that came about because we had 2000 customers that wanted chicken and pork. So again, we have the chicken and the pork to sell more beef, but the, the cattle impact is something. However, when you look at regenerative agriculture, the next term will probably be resilient. The next term after that, I don't know. But the five soil health principles that, that Jay and his team penned are, are, are the key. Whatever you can do at your farming operation today to minimize disturbance. As no-tillers, we're doing that really well. But we need to look at the chemical inputs. How can we reduce the chemical inputs? How can we reduce the fertilizer inputs? How can we re reduce what we're doing? There's, there's this need as a farmer, I have to do something. How can we sit back and let nature do it? Nature did it just fine in the prairie system and created these 8% organic matter soils before we did something and moved them down to 2%, okay? How can we back off and let it do it? You know, keep the ground covered, keep something growing all the time. That's cover crops, guys. You know, maximize diversity. We got to find something other than corn and beans, you know, another rotation crop. The diverse cover crops is one way to get diversity in there. But I think diversity is the hardest thing we've got going with our markets. The final thing is the livestock. You know, if you can do the other four, do them, do more of them. The livestock, maybe you partner with a, there's several young people that want a farm lifestyle, that want to live not in a glammed up palace in some suburb. They want to live a life out on the land. And maybe you can find somebody to partner with to do that if, if livestock's not your thing. But sure. whatever it takes, we have, we have the unintended consequences of decoupling livestock from the land has had uh, amazing effects on, on soil quality as in detrimental effects.
Let's shift gears a little bit. You're still running your California operation? Uh, out in California, Silas Rosso is a longtime uh, employee, became partner with me out there. He's a managing partner. So mm -hmm. he's in charge of all the day-to-day -day operations there, doing a great job. Uh, we continue to make an impact on tillage. The latest thing is we are integrating livestock, Frank, into pistachios and almonds and walnuts. Uh, we have high diversity cover crops and special uh, cedars that we've basically built, uh, taking a Salford tank and John Deere drills and making a baby out of them and running them between almond orchard rows. Uh, with a huge rental business, they're covering thousands of acres per year uh, doing that. And um, we've got tomato growers that are now doing cover crops as a hay crop in crop, hay crop income. Uh, so uh, lots of uh, lots of things going on in that arena, in addition to all the uh, biological stuff that we've done for a long time. But uh, it's fun to see uh, goats and sheep inside of orchards. Um, <laughs> it's amazing the difference it makes in in the plant health and the amount of pesticides we've reduced because of all the beneficial insects in the cover crops. Yeah, I mean, it's we've gone from eight to maybe three uh, uh, insect applications because of cover crops. It's, wow. it's phenomenal. One of the things that happened lately was we had this tragic uh, um, accident in I-55 about May 1st in uh, central Illinois. And with your experience in California, we've done a few stories over the years on legislation with dust particles. Are we going to see more of that? Or can you elaborate on what's been done in California? So in California, there's a, a special group that's been created called the California Air Resources Board um, several years ago. And they were looking at emissions of dust for uh, human quality of life. Um, two particulate sizes. They're particularly interested in PM10, which is small enough to come into your lungs, but never leave. And PM2.5, which is more um, diesel exhaust emission related, which is small enough to enter your lungs and enter your bloodstream. Uh, so those are, those are the particulate sizes they were looking at. Um, tillage was a part of that. And like you said, the stories that you did were focusing on if we can combine tillage passes to where we have one dust emission event instead of eight dust emission events, that helps. Or better yet, if we can do less intensity of tillage, we re, um, do less dust emission. Typically, we don't have the windy events except for in the early spring in the Central Valley of California that stirs up a lot of dust. Um, there is a lot of dust emissions associated with almond harvest and sweeping of the almonds on the floor. And that's being highly targeted right now to where we do more of a catch type harvesting system. But the good news is that's a great fit for cover crops because now we don't have the problems of the cover crops residue interfering with harvest. So that could be a potential good thing. As far as an I-55, um, that, you know, that's a requirement in that part of Illinois. You have to till. Um, you know, if, if not, they, I think you, you're liable for jail time in, in that part of Illinois. It's, uh, I, isn't that part of the rules down there? Could be. We'll I, I'm, ju I'm just joking. Uh, you know, well, no we may find is, out that there's truth to this. We'll see. Well, you know, no till can work anywhere and it's, it's a social thing, right? And, um, there's a lot of work done on uh, sociology and peer pressure. It, it can work even on high value crops and high value farm ground it can work at just the, the biggest compaction layer is typically the uh, between our two ears 
And uh, if we can break that compaction and think differently, it's great because, um, you know, uh, tillage does more than kill soil biology. And unfortunately, people lost their lives this time. And uh, some will say, oh, that's just because uh, weird event and all those things. But, you know, weird events are becoming more commonplace. And, and we have to be ready for weird, whether it's intense rainfalls, whether it's wind events, drought events. Uh, that's our responsibility. It's our land. Uh, we can't be uh, we can't be doing things that are going to harm others by what we do on our land. Right. Hey, this has been great, but I want to switch uh, sw switch us around a little bit because we also have Farm Equipment Magazine that goes to dealers, and so I like to talk about a little experience you had in the dealer business, both you and your dad, and how you got started, and then ask you a couple interesting questions at the end. All right. My synchronizer, we're shifting gears so much here, Frank. My synchronizers are getting hot. Okay. <laughs> well, well, we'll get through the dealer thing and we'll wrap this up. So. Oh, no problem. What do you want to know about the dealer thing? Well, tell us how your dad, you and your dad got involved in the dealership operation. Well, I assume your dad started as a diesel mechanic, right? That's right. He started as a, um, went to college. Um, and um, after he got out of the army, uh, as a diesel mechanic, he started in, uh, I, I believe it was in Virginia, Illinois, at the IH dealership there as a diesel mechanic, moved up into the parts department, and then uh, went to another dealership as a salesperson. Uh, dealership had some struggles there in the late 80s, just just couldn't get over the 80s hump. And uh, some local farmers, uh, seven of them, and him all went together to uh, purchased a single store and then we uh, he acquired um, and the group acquired two other case power and equipment stores over time now the dealer's land landscape has is completely different you wouldn't even recognize it today compared to back then sure um, you know the capital involved uh, is and and the organization of dealerships is completely different i mean there's probably pretty rare today to have any single stores. Um, you know, that's been quite a transition and it, and it kind of depends on who's in charge. Um, sometimes they want lots of consolidation for a five to 10 year period. And then they're like, well, let's hold off on this for a little period. And then, the, then they're back. It's, it's kind of this slinky effect with consolidation and territory reps and such. But, um, it was a fun time. Uh, I, we really enjoyed it. Um, you know, we were, we had a, a things that we're really proud of is our uptime service program that we, we created and um, case patterned off of a lot, the, the combine uh, related thing. Each one of our dealerships had a, a maintainer based truck, which in 1990s, nobody had, you know, that's kind of standard now. Uh, we had uh, just, just a lot of good things going on and uh, service was really what we built it from and um our one of our problems is uh we grew so fast in sales um that we outgrew our working capital essentially and had too much used inventory and used inventory values changed and when used inventory values change your balance sheet changes real quick right so i i see that today you know when times have been good the used inventory starts in creeping up and you see a lot of used iron out there and 
that's a used iron is a dealership killer. So right. have to always be aware of that. And you know, it was a problem selling that big equipment when the big equipment was a 2188 combine, Frank. <laughs> now, uh, you know, a, a 9250 or, uh, you know, a five-year-old 9250 or X9 um, class 10, um, who's the buyer? Who is the second buyer? You know, because the big farmers and that, that mid-sized guy is just, it was disappearing in the nineties. It is, who is it? You know, uh, what, what person that my dad and I, that were nighttime and weekend farmers when we were working at the dealership can afford a, uh, an X nine combine, you know, where does that, how does that work out? So keeping the used inventory moving, boy, that's, uh, that's, that's the trick. But the good news is, is I think the, um, you know, tractor zoom, tractor house, um, big iron, all these markets were likely will continue to transition more and more to where the farmer is selling that their own through some sort of an online listing service. Sure. And then the farmer can go to any dealer to buy the new, uh, and he can choose the dealer based on the support he wants with that new equipment. And, um, there's more options for the used sale because the the new dealer doesn't want that used equipment. So um, that that's a that's the constant struggle is is the used. Well, that's what dealers are saying today. We no longer know who the second or third buyer is going to be. I I bet Frank, if you look back through 20 years ago articles, I bet you'd have those same quotes in there. <laughs> Don't know who that second and third buyer is going to be. Right. Well, the thing that amazes me today is you're, if you're buying a big, big combine, spending a half million or much more than that, it seems to me the big problem is having enough grain carts and enough semis to keep that thing rolling because the capacity is so high. Do you have enough trucks to keep it, keep the combine rolling? that and also your infrastructure at the bend site uh for drying yeah. and those kind of things it it's uh that is a challenge uh, the other thing is too um we did two combines um so we got twins uh we, we were looking at trading to a new combine they were only going to give us sixty thousand for ours and didn't have that many hours on it but wow why do that so we went out and bought a twin to it for sixty thousand and had two machines one went down you still had one uh put one in corn one in beans so if you had weather changes you could do that um you know so i think that mid buy that third or fourth buyer may be a big farmer picking up a spare machine or a you know a night and weekend machine for when the guy that works in town comes out and and helps um so there's some things there but the, yeah the logistics side's a problem and i'm sure you've heard uh skilled labor's a problem uh on technicians um i do think the diagnostic tools we have today help to be able to diagnose things where that you know mechanic intuition is um less needed because it doesn't exist like it used to um but there's also more complex things that didn't exist so uh that's that's definitely changing and you know, Mike Rowe is doing what he can, but 
people don't like dirty jobs, right? And right. there's nothing fun about being a service mechanic. Uh, I remember, you know, I was store manager, but, you know, in harvest time, everybody was everything, right? So I I know I've been out inside of axial flows, setting them and changing the concaves with bean dust everywhere. That's not fun. And I only did it for half a day, right? You know, and we're asking guys to do this all day, every day for two months. And then we're asking them to work on them all day, every day in the, in the shed. And it's just not, it's not fun jobs. So finding people who want to do that hard work, it's a challenge because there's a lot of other things they can do today. Right. So you've got the, you've got the dealer background and you got the farm background. What about the right to repair controversy? Well, um, there, huh. I, I haven't, I haven't dove into that a whole lot, uh, to be honest with you, Frank, but, um, I think that kind of got settled out a little bit here lately, but, um, if I look at other things, okay. Uh, you know, I can't go in and repair my own software on my computer or on my phone or those kind of things. Uh, we just accept that as normal. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't like it, you know, that you're plugged into only one place. Um, I understand that. I, I think maybe it'd be less of an issue if we didn't, if we had more access to people able to repair. I think the issue is, is that we can't count on the OEM to do what we need done. So therefore we're hiring a, a local, uh, professional mechanic who is not part of a dealership system and then that, that that we know and trust but now they can't repair our machinery when we want them to uh so uh you know maybe the oems need to say hey uh we understand we have a problem our dealers can't do everything and if you are a professional mechanic not a shade tree mechanic but if you're a professional mechanic and want access to our software you can do that and you know, there has to be some sort of a standard that the OEMs have to provide. I mean, they have standards on parts fulfillment, uh, order fulfillment, and all that kind of stuff. They can have those same standards on uh, technical fulfillment and quality uh, feedback. And if the dealer isn't making it happen, then the, the third-party mechanic, sh there should be ability, if they're not going to let us do it ourselves, they should be able to license somebody else who can do it. So just like Microsoft has licensed Microsoft software people, uh, same con QuickBooks has licensed people uh, to do things. So if your dealer, net dealer network can't pull it off, Mr. OEM, you have to provide the solution. You know, if you're not going to let the farmer work on it himself or herself, then you need to make it available for somebody to be able to do it because yeah. otherwise why am I paying $900,000 for this thing that's going to sit dead in the water? Well, it's interesting with some dealers have told us with the uh, independent mechanics in their area that 40% of their parts sales are going to these independent parts guys. So it's an important part of their business. And, you know, and some dealers say we, we, we couldn't handle it all if we had to. Right. And, and you're not going to be able to hire those independent guys back. There's a reason they're independent. They want to be. Right, right. 
So we've missed having you at the NOTO conference. And part of the problem is you've been running your California conference at the same time as our NOTO conference. What is it, you got one coming up in January? Uh, at the moment, we do not have one on the books this year. So uh, COVID uh, changed everything. And mm -hmm. being in California, <laughs> the COVID capital of lockdowns uh, really kind of changed that. We went to a virtual format um, during our third year. And then the last two years, we've been doing an on-farm format here. So more of a field experience type of thing. So we're going to continue to uh, do those kind of things and, and be a little more, it, it's just tougher to get people to come to conferences, as I'm sure you're well aware of that. YouTube is uh, too easy. Uh, people like to watch something short in their jammies and um, and a topic that they need at the moment that they need it. And unfortunately, um, that gets us out of the, the thinking realm, right? Sure. How am I going to change my operation? It gets us out of that social dynamic because the magic of the no-till conference, you know, even though when you talk, Frank, it is it moves mountains and it's amazing, okay? But the best part is the coffee breaks and and the round tables and the small group discussions and and just it's a reunion right for right. The old exactly. calls, uh, to get to see everybody that that's the value of the no no till conference is getting together and uh virtual stuff just don't don't cut it but it's getting harder and harder to get people to to um go go to things it, right. it's expensive it takes time and um, you don't know what you're missing in, in, unless you've been. Well, I have an interesting story about this because it was 10, 15 years ago and uh, a no-tiller called me in late August to register for the no-tillage conference and somehow I took the call and so I registered him and I said, you know, I feel guilty about this because we're running behind on the program. I don't have it all done yet. And he said to me, I don't care. I said, what do you mean you don't care? And he said, well, I've been to the NOTO conference. I know you'll have a good conference. I know you have great speakers, but I'm telling you right now, if I think you have a lousy program, I'm still coming because the networking in the halls will more than pay for the whole conference for me. <laughs> Thanks for listening today. It's been fun to eavesdrop on Monty and Frank's conversation. They've known each other a long time and hearing them discuss the history and changes we've seen in no-till and soil health reminds us of why we are doing the work to help growers adopt these practices and systems. And you can learn even more about what we're doing to help growers by checking out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.